If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 5 in just a moment. Uh, you're turning there. So last week, we began a series for the short month uh, of June, a short series for this month, going through this little letter from Paul to Titus. And so as we looked at the opening verses last week, we considered the cultural background that Paul is writing into as he addresses Titus. Titus is ministering on the island of Crete, uh, this island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, just south of the mainland of Greece. And Crete is a predominantly pagan place with a notoriously shady reputation. Um, the mythological background of Crete includes stories such as how the Greek god Zeus was hidden there until he could eventually overthrow his father, the titan Kronos, who was um, a, a being that decided that he was so afraid of being overthrown, he would eat his own children, only to eventually be overthrown by one of his own children, Zeus. Uh, another story from the island of Crete is the, the myth of the Minotaur. Some of you are familiar with this, a creature that's half bull, half human, that uh, lives in this maze of a labyrinth that feasts on human flesh, and people from Crete manage to force folks across the water from Athens to offer up uh, women and children every year as tribute to satisfy the hunger of this beast that lived on Crete. So that's some of the background of this place where Titus is ministering. These are the stories of their gods and their leaders, a violent, deceptive bunch of people. So no wonder one of Crete's own poets by the name of Epimenides, writing in the 6th century BC, says about the Cretan people, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. In fact, in the ancient world, the verb to cretinize meant to lie or to deceive. To be a person of Crete is synonymous with being an evil, lying, deceptive person. It's what they're known for. Deception, violence, and ill will. Not a good bunch to be around. So with this cultural setting, last week we asked, what is Paul's primary message to the people of Crete? What is he calling Titus to as he seeks to minister in such a place? And the answer that we saw to all of this evil over and over again, more than nine times throughout this short letter, is goodness. The answer is goodness. Paul constantly calls the people to love good, to teach good, to do good, all because God is good. Over and over again, Paul calls the church in Crete to be a place of 
goodness amidst evil. The answer is not merely to quote Bible verses at them. In fact, the book of Titus does not have any quotes from the Old Testament, unlike many of Paul's other letters, which are full of them. The pagan people of Crete won't know or care about the Bible. And so instead of quoting the word of God, Paul calls them instead to live the life of God that the goodness of their life and character would shine a light toward the goodness of God. This is very much in line with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is what Paul is calling the people of Crete to. And he's telling Titus, this is what your job is as you minister there. The way to minister in the midst of a culture of evil is to cultivate a culture of goodness. That's what God has called his people to, and that's what this little letter to Titus is all about. So today, we're going to move from the big introduction to jumping into some of the instructions that Paul gives to Titus as he describes this culture and this community of goodness. So let's read Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. An overseer of God's household must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that they will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. 
But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are our good God who has shown us the way to live in your good life. I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when we were on this family cruise uh, last month, there was one day that I attended a talk by the captain of the ship where he described all the different ways that the ship worked, uh, how they navigate, and, and so on and so forth. He talked about how they always use multiple ways of tracking their location, not only relying on modern GPS, but also using classic methods like measuring their distance from the land or even at night looking up at the stars to get their orientation. It was amazing. I mean, they use this instrument to look up at the stars that's hundreds of years old, still in use on a modern-day cruise ship in the middle of the night. That's pretty cool, right? And so he was talking about all of this stuff and, and how it works and, um, you know, talking about how the ship's engines work and the propellers and all of this. And I think it was someone during Q&A afterwards asked how quickly the ship was able to maneuver. Um, uh, and the captain asked the room what they thought. What do you guys think? How long do you think it would take this ship to, to rotate 360 degrees all the way around? How long do you think that would take? Now remember, these ships are big, like really, really big. Thousands of people on them big. A couple of city blocks big. Uh, I, I used to work downtown Seattle at this um, waterfront hotel, and every summer the cruise ships came by. The ships were bigger than the hotel I worked in, right? These are big ships, all right, so, so what do you guys think? Um, how long do you think it takes a ship like that to rotate 360 degrees all the way around? A half hour, all right, 30 minutes to get all the way around, 15 minutes? A day, all right? Oh, man, all right, so the, the um, you know, old uh, person very familiar with ships uh, says five minutes. The answer, according to the captain, Four minutes. At top speed, it's able to rotate 90 degrees per minute at full speed. That's pretty incredible. And the captain went on to say, now the ship can do this. You do not want to see the ship do this. Your soup will not stay in your bowl. 
he said, you know, laughing with a smile in his Greek accent. Um, the, the captain himself was Greek. And, and so throughout this talk, he also mentioned the, the challenges of navigating uh, through difficult situations, especially docking at notoriously windy ports. One of the places where we stopped was one of those. And how hard the ship has to work to, to kind of not be blown away by the wind and be able to dock and, and all of that. It was fascinating and very educational to hear him describe all of these different things. But, but here's the thing that, that really sticks with me uh, about this that very fortunately the captain was very aware of, and that is where the captain goes, the ship goes. And where the ship goes, the people aboard also go, Right? I mean, that is something that you're just very aware of as you're learning about all of this and the way that a ship can maneuver. Whether it's navigating by stars at night, docking at a windy port, or spinning around at 90 degrees per minute, where the captain goes, the ship goes, and where the ship goes, everyone goes. It's true of a cruise ship, but it's also true of the culture that we find ourselves in. As a captain maneuvers a ship, so leaders create culture. Last week, I shared a quote from a book that the New Testament scholar Scott McKnight wrote with his daughter, Laura Beringer, titled, A Church Called Tove, which is the Hebrew word for good. A church called good. Uh, and, and they write about cultivating a culture of goodness. They opened up the book we read last week by emphasizing how everyone is part of a culture, and everyone is shaped by the culture that they are a part of, and yet also people contribute to the culture that they're in, right? It's this circular thing. And so as they turn their attention from culture in general to church in particular, they write this, every church is a distinct culture. Every church is a distinct culture formed and perpetuated by the ongoing interaction of leaders and congregants. Over time, it is the interaction of the leaders and congregation, the congregation and leaders, that forms the culture of the church. And whatever culture is formed, whether good or bad, Every church, every community is a culture. They offer uh, this image of, of kind of this cyclical nature about how culture is this agent that forms pastors and leaders and congregations who then go back around and shape the culture and on and on it goes. Every church is a culture. Every community is a culture. We're all on a ship that's going somewhere. And in our passage, we can see some strong, challenging winds that are blowing against the way of God. So Paul directs Titus to find good captains, so to speak, who will be able to navigate the people as they weather the winds. Paul begins by describing these good qualities. Then he addresses the problems, right? That's, that's what we read. But I think it's helpful to go the other way around, to, to start by looking at the problems so that then we can back up and see how 
the, the instructions that Paul gives address those problems specifically. So let's start down in verse 10, and then we'll back up uh, from there. So beginning in verse 10, Paul describes the reason why it's necessary to have good leaders at the helm of a community. Namely, because of some people who are intentionally disrupting what God is doing. He describes them as rebellious people full of empty talk and deception who teach what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. So I want to briefly consider who it is that Paul is talking about and what it is that they are doing. So first, who are they? Paul identifies these problem people as those from the circumcision. Uh, This is a way of referring to Jewish people uh, because of their practice of circumcising young boys when they're eight days old, a practice that goes all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham. Now, there are some scholars who look at this and they believe that this is a general reference to the Jews, while others understand it to be a specific reference to a particular group of Jews who strongly emphasize this necessity of circumcision in order to be God's people. This was a big conversation that the early church had. And it it was emphatic uh, after discernment that no, Uh, People don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. God is saving everyone. But this group, the circumcision, is coming around and causing trouble. So what exactly are they doing? Well, verse 11 says they are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. What are they teaching? Well, verse 14 says they're teaching Jewish myths and the commands of people, human commandments, who reject the truth. So what exactly is is going on here? Well, throughout the book of Acts, um, we we see many of Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, And though we see many of them, we don't actually see uh, the story of, of Paul's journey to Crete. Uh, Nevertheless, there is a pattern that begins to develop throughout the book of Acts. As Paul is journeying from place to place, declaring the good news of Jesus to people. The pattern is this, time and time again, following in Paul's tracks, there's this group of Jews who stroll into town shortly after him with the intention of discrediting him, and undoing what he has done and declaring the story of Jesus. Sometimes they even catch up to Paul and they try to stone him to death. Other times they just try to disorient and scatter the people who Paul has ministered to. But whatever it is that happens, they are constantly opposed to Paul. And so perhaps this is the group that has now shown up on Crete to cause trouble just like they always do, following behind Paul's coattails. They've come to Crete, and and they're they're doing what they do. And if so, it seems like over time, this anti-Paul passion project of theirs has developed into a somewhat lucrative career. 
Uh, right now they're able to teach what they shouldn't teach, as Paul says, and they get a good paycheck from it. They're able to get a bit of a kickback. I don't know what's going on. Maybe they're taking up collections at their teachings. Maybe they're selling pamphlets filled with those Jewish myths and human commandments. I don't know exactly, uh, but Paul makes it clear that this group is getting money from what they're doing. They've made a career out of following Paul and trying to discredit him. This group is violently following Paul. They're seeking to deceive people and get what they can from it. So Paul applies the familiar words of that Cretan poet to who? This Jewish group. He applies it to this group of people who are causing trouble from the circumcision. He says they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Right? Ironically, it's not the Cretan people who Paul is criticizing, but this rebellious bunch of Jews constantly causing trouble. And the even bigger irony here is that the people who are causing the most trouble for the message of the kingdom of God are religious people. Paul's not chewing out the pagan people of Crete for their shady reputation and deceptive culture. Instead, he is rebuking the religious people who are bickering about rules and myths and commands because this religious bickering about all of those things is causing more trouble for the kingdom of God than anything else. Isn't that often true today? How often has the church itself been the biggest barrier for people coming to know Jesus? There's a book that was very popular back when I was in college, simply titled, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. That's a lot of people's story. Jesus is a pretty compelling guy, but all those people that claim to follow him, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Right? How often has that been true in our world? How often has the church itself distracted people from the kingdom of God by insisting on certain religious rules, certain human commands, instead of cultivating and creating a culture of goodness that points people toward the goodness of God? See, Titus is trying to minister to a people who do not know God, and yet it's the people who supposedly know God who are getting in the way. Verse 16 says, They claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. These religious people are corrupt. And so whatever they do, even if they do it in the name of God, brings corruption with them. This is the problem that's occurring on Crete. This is the problem they're facing. So what is the solution? How do they untangle themselves from this culture of corruption? Well, the answer is by cultivating and persisting in a culture of goodness. 
And one of the ways to begin doing this is to appoint leaders who will exude and shine forth this kind of goodness. So backing up to verse 5, Paul directs Titus to appoint elders in every town. Now, before we jump into the the list of qualities that Paul describes here, I need to emphasize something that we talked about a couple of years ago when we were appointing elders here. Because the church has often approached passages like this, like this one here and also the one in Timothy, as lists of qualifications. A list of qualifications, right? We lay them out as a bullet point list. We put check boxes next to them. We go through. Well, is, are they, is it the husband of one wife? Do they have godly children? Are they not arrogant? Are they hospitable? On and on it goes. And we just try to check all the boxes, and that's how we make our decisions. The problem is when we approach these things like this, uh, we've often just ruled out disqualified people because they weren't married or because they didn't have children or so on and so forth, right? They didn't check all the boxes. And when you read it that way, you would end up disqualifying Jesus if he were at your church, right? He wasn't married. He didn't have children. And I just want to suggest that if the way we read Scripture disqualifies from Jesus from being a leader in our church, we're not reading Scripture rightly. Right? And so, as we look at passages like this, they are not essentially lists of qualifications, but rather qualities of character. They're descriptions of the quality of character that you're looking for. It's not about, does this person check these boxes? It's about, does this person have this kind of character? That's what Paul's addressing. So, the qualities of character begin in verse 6. Not with how this person is as an individual. Right? Look at their resume. Rather, Paul begins with how this person is in community. Look at their relationships. Paul points to marriage and family as a first place to look, to demonstrate the kind of character that a person has. And this is important because there's a whole lot of individually very impressive people who cause catastrophe in community. Their life in community is essential, Paul says, because caring for the church is essentially about cultivating community. How does this person exist, not just by themselves, but with people? How are they in relationship? More than that, it's about shaping a culture for a community to thrive in. That's what this is all about. 
So community is the first place that Paul starts as he looks at all of this. What is this person like in their relationships? What kind of community flows from this person's life and character? We see this emphasis all throughout the passage. Right in verse 11, the problem people are ruining what? Households. In verse 6, Paul points to the potential leader's household as a place to look. And then in verse 7, as he continues, he describes them as overseers of God's household. Leading the church is about creating a home. It's about creating a household, cultivating a community, creating a culture. That's what leading the church is about. So what kind of character can create a culture that points to God? Verses 7 to 9 describe this. Describe the kind of person who can create and care for this kind of culture. So Paul begins with a list of vices to avoid and then describes the kinds of virtues to cultivate. So first, the vices. He writes, an overseer of God's household must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. And these are not just a random list of vices. They are a very specific list of some of the primary temptations and pitfalls that spiritual leaders face. Too often, if you ask a secular person what religious leaders are like, they may very well list off these words. They're arrogant. They're angry. They're bullies who are just after your money, right? That's a big picture of what religious leaders are seen as. Ouch. That hurts, right? Too often the church has fallen right into the things that Paul warned about. There are studies that have shown that because of the demand on the lives of church leaders, they're often very susceptible to various kinds of substance abuse as well, whether alcohol, pornography, or something else. Paul didn't just randomly add in not an excessive drinker. He knew that this was a temptation that many leaders would face and struggle with. Perhaps he himself had struggled with it. Many pastors have fallen right into these temptations despite preaching against them. And we live in an age where these immense character flaws are on display and rightly being called to account. Just short of 10 years ago, one of the nation's largest churches, a multi-campus church in and around the Pacific Northwest, Seattle area, dissolved overnight because the pastor of that church was arrogant, hot-tempered, 
a notorious bully who led by fear and who, it turns out, used many of the church's resources to advance his own book deal that made him quite a bit of money. All of this came to the surface and the church vanished overnight. But it wasn't without a great deal of damage. People were hurt. Their faith was distorted. Their idea of God was damaged. There are people still recovering from it. And as stories emerge from this particular instance and others like it, it becomes very clear that the problem is not just one bad leader. The problem extends to the culture that was created in that church, in that community. It was created perhaps by that leader, but it was reinforced and the church continued to lift up that leader. It was a church, that, it, was a, it was a culture that is not embodying the goodness of God, but all the worst things in humanity. It becomes a culture of community. The whole church ends up becoming angry, arrogant bullies. I mean, have you ever encountered a church like this? It's not a good place to be. Though some leaders may be exceptional at declaring the message of Christ, if they are incapable of modeling the character of Christ, they are not to lead. There are people who proclaim good news, but do not live good lives. And this is the problem that Paul is trying to counter from the very start of this church here in Crete. Character creates culture, not just teaching. And where character is corrupt, culture will be corrupt. So then in verse 8, he turns and he begins to describe the kind of character to look for that is capable of creating a culture of goodness that points people toward the goodness of God. Character that is hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message is taught. Right? So instead of being a bully pushing others around, they're hospitable, welcoming others in. You see the difference? Instead of excessive drinkers turning to the influence of substances that cloud the mind, they are sensible with a clear mind. Instead of arrogant, self-righteous, they are truly righteous and holy as they're rooted in and oriented toward God. Instead of hot-tempered, ready to fly off the handle at any moment, they are self-controlled, remaining patient and gentle. 
This is what it looks like to be a person who loves what is good. This is what it looks like to hold to the faithful message that has been taught. To be the kind of people who don't only share this message, but live this message. This kind of character is not only able to inform a community about Christ, but also form a community into Christ-likeness. Into a good people that point toward our good God. And that's really the point of all of this. just want to zoom out and look at this bigger picture as we, as we come to a close. Because you see, a lot of times we've uh, looked at, at letters like this, at passages like this. I was talking with someone just last week as we're beginning Titus. Uh, and, and, you know, we look at this, and, well, it's just instructions for elders, right? It's how we pick leaders. It's how we choose people. It's, that's for the elders and the church leaders to, to think about. And we can kind of just skip past it. But the whole point of these instructions is that this is the kind of community Paul envisions. This is the kind of community that God hopes for. A culture of goodness in the midst of evil. It's not just instructions for choosing leaders and church politics and all that stuff. This is communicating God's heart for the world. This is what my people should look like. This is the kind of culture that my people are meant to embody. This is who we are called to be. And so the question that I want to ponder together and ask you is, What kind of culture are we living in? As we live our life together here at the Church of Christ at Federal Way, what culture do we create? Is it a culture of goodness? Is it a culture where just being together and being around one another, we can encounter the goodness of God? By the grace of God, I think that it is often. Praise God for that. But this is a continuing thing that we're called to. And so in each moment, it's good to ask ourselves, as we're interacting with each other or not interacting with each other, to ask, what culture are my actions creating? What culture am I contributing to? That's a question not just for our leaders, but for every person to consider. What culture is being created here? And how can we continue shaping this into a place of goodness? Because that's what we're called to. Here in this church, that it would spill out into our daily lives, which is what we'll look at next week as Paul continues writing. So before we we close and, and wrap up, What I would like to do, how I would like to to end this time, is simply by praying and turning our attention to our good God as we ask him to continue shaping and forming this culture of ours into a place of goodness. So will you pray with me?
Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are a good God. From the beginning, you created all things. And each day you said, it is good. You created light and darkness and you said, it is good. You created people and animals and you said, it is good. You've created this place to be a place of goodness. Lord, the Psalms declare your goodness. The prophets call people to return to your goodness. After all, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's because you are good that we turn to you and come to you. And so we ask that you would move here among us, the Church of Christ in a federal way. You would help us to live into the goodness of who you are. Help us to live good lives that point to you, our good God. And in this place of prayer, I want to invite you, if you're sitting around one of our elders, Mary, Peter, Jerry are here this morning, extend your arms, your hands toward them. I just want to offer a prayer. Lord, would you bless these leaders among us? Would you bless them in their home, in their families, in their marriages? Would you continue to cultivate your goodness within their hearts and character? Lord, we ask that you would protect them, and I ask you would protect me from the temptations that come with leading. The temptations to become arrogant, self-righteous, to use the influence that we have for our own gain. Lord, would you continue to shape our hearts to embody the goodness of who you are and to declare the good news of your kingdom. Lord, would this church be a place where your goodness is encountered and experienced, that we might be a people who love what is good and constantly turn toward you, we ask this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.